Hallelujah. Anybody glad about their salvation this morning? Glory to God. Welcome to Hunger Church Atlanta. Uh, listen, I believe that you are here because God has something for you to experience. Amen. How many of you were here for the message on last week? You were here for the word of the Lord. So, so, so I have, I received an inbox message about that. And I want to address that because um, this, this series is going to go on and on until we, we settle into this. Amen. And one of the good things about, about uh, learning what we're learning is, believe it or not, many of us who were born again were not born again because we heard the gospel. Listen to this. We were born again because we heard about hell. Good to see you. <laughs> so, so how many of you, I want to take a poll real quickly and give, allow me to, to kind of ease into this because we're going to do some work today. Um, how many of you can say that you actually heard a gospel message before you respond? In other words, you heard the preaching that Jesus loves you, that God sent his son for you, and you were moved with a warm and fuzzy, and you responded to a message of love, and you gave your life to Christ. Okay, now, for, for, thank you for that response. How many of you say, it wasn't like that for me? I heard about hell, and I was like, I ain't going there. Put your hand up. Okay, now, so, so I want to share with you that, that if, you, if you responded to a message about hell, that means your relationship with God is fear-based. And that means as long as you're afraid, you're going to do well. But when you cease to be afraid, then you're going to slip back into whatever you were in before. Now, this, I don't say this by way of condemnation. My goal is, is for us to understand that the gospel is based on love. And whenever I preach the grace of God, whenever I preach, I've never gotten much, as much hate mail as when I preach grace and forgiveness of God because people don't want to hear that. People want to believe that God is hateful, he's a monster, and he's a villain with authority, and he wants us to be afraid of him. Nothing can be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, there will be no manifestation of the Spirit if there's fear, not faith. Right? So, so what we're building on, if you, if you look at our... our um, Intent. It's love, transformation, and impact. It begins with love. Everybody say it begins with love. How many times have you been in a church where you felt comfortable and everything was right and safe until someone responded or acted towards you in an unloving way? Because ultimately what's going to happen is if we don't teach love as a foundation, we're going to find a way to be unloving. We're going to find a way to make our culture unsafe. So today I want to talk to us about this, just a simple topic. I will not condemn you. Say that out loud. I find someone and point to them, tell them, I will not condemn you. You may, be, you may have seen in the presence of the Lord. I want to go right in. And for those of you who don't know, we, we are a teaching church. We shout, we dance, we celebrate, we praise God, but we teach. Amen? Amen. All right, we teach. And I want us to, we're going to expand in what we're doing. For those of you uh, who are wondering we, we, are, we are searching for property we've been walking through buildings laying claim how many of you got faith for property yeah and so in the, in the upcoming uh, a couple weeks matter of fact probably I'll start talking to you about it next week or so we're going to be talking to us about our stewardship campaign where we're about to give towards where we're going oh wait 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 that's only 10 of you wait 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 
Now, now, now I, want to, I want you to practice doing this, right? I want you to practice doing this. Practice saying this. I will have the money I need when I need it. Matter of fact, I dare, I dare you to say something crazy. I, I, don't know, I, I don't know if you have the faith for this. But it won't happen until you say it. I'm about to challenge you. I'm about to challenge you. Say before this year is out. I will be making double what I'm making right now. If, if, you, if you have nerve, if you have nerve, if you have some nerve. No, 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 I'm not playing with this. Say before this year is over with. I will be making six figures. Some of you making that now. Say before the year is over with. I will be making seven figures. Now wait, now listen. Here's what I challenge you to do. I was talking about Jesus, you didn't get stirred. But I started talking about your, yeah, that stirred you. That got your attention. Watch this. I'm not just saying this. My wife and I have a, we have a challenge going on. And our declaration has started. You have to say this every day for the rest of this year. The Bible says that. Watch this. The opposite of, uh, the opposite of condemnation is justification. I share that with you, right? But if I, get, I may not get to this in the lesson today, but I want to share this with you. Jesus said that every idle word that you speak will come up again in the judgment. That word idle is a word that means useless or unemployed. Listen to this. The, the word useless, idle word, it means an unemployed word. Thoughtless speaking. Giving the idea that when we speak words, we should give them assignment. Your words should be employed, right? We don't believe this, but, but it is true. Your words do have power. Words are things. They are creative things. And I'm not, I'm not teaching superstition or something. No, this is Bible. Out of your mouth, you can declare a thing. And God will actually, not, I didn't say decree, I said declare a thing based on what God says. And it would actually steer your path to it. So when you say this, I'm not just having you say something. I don't know where you are financially. I don't know if you need the double or you need the six or you need the seven. I'm actually confessing the eight for myself. But that's just me. That's just me. That's just me because I, I need to be in that kind of position right now, right? So said before this year's out, the Lord would grace my finances. And I will make double what I'm making now. Six figures. Seven figures, eight figures, it will be so and not otherwise. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm meaning that, I'm meaning that. Why don't you give God some praise right on top of that like you believe that. So, yes, so what I want to do real quickly is I want, I want to speak to the question. I, I received the question um, uh, after Touchpoint Tuesday, I feel obligated to address it. You may be seated. Um, the, the question was asked, um, it says, um, how do we reconcile the truth of um, Ume Eti and the truths found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, and Revelation 20, verse 11? Now, uh, for those of you who weren't here on last week, we taught a message from the book of Hebrews dealing with the issue where God says, He says, I will, I will be merciful to their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. The two words at the end of that verse, no more, they're the Greek word. Uh, Greek words, ume eti. The, 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 the words ume are a double, double negative. They're in the emphatic 
negative future, emphatic negative future. And what that means is God says, absolutely, there's no way in, there's no way in the earth, heaven, or hell that I'm going to, in street Greek, actual street Greek, there's no way, absolutely no way that I will remember your sins. In saying that, what God has done is limit himself. That once he forgives your sin, he is incapable of remembering it. Not because he can't, because God can do anything he wants to. To include, put limits on himself. And so God is saying, when you're in Christ, this is in the Bible. I, I taught a whole lesson on this last week. When you're in Christ and you're walking with Christ, God says your sins are forgiven. I will be merciful to your inequities, your iniquities, to the propensity of your flesh. I will show mercy. When I do judge you, it will be for, chast- for redemptive chastisement, not for condemnation. All right? Now, when in teaching this, the look on your faces always tell me you've never heard this before, and it scares me. Because it makes me wonder, what did you hear? What gospel did you hear? Because Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, if anyone comes preaching any other gospel, but the gospel I delivered to you, even if it's an angel from heaven, let them be anathema, which means to be accursed. Let a curse follow their lives for preaching a gospel that Jesus did not give. Works righteousness is what we preach today in the 21st century. We have taught you that in order to be accepted by God, you have to live up to a standard. So you live a stressful Christian life. As a matter of fact, um, a, a therapist in Birmingham told me years ago that the majority of her clients come from word of faith evangelical churches. Where people literally lose their minds trying to serve God. Because the stress of trying to live up to what we, what we give as doctrine When Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you, shout it out, I'll give you what? Rest. Now, be honest with me. How many of you today could say your Christian experience feels like rest? Look around the room. Be honest with me. How many of you said this does not feel like rest? Put your hand up. No, be honest. Put your hand up. It's because we've been preaching the wrong things to you. But it's partially your fault. I said it's partially your fault. And here's why. Because when we begin to preach to you the true gospel and begin to lay line upon line and precept upon precept and educate you into the things of God, you disconnect. But the moment we start addressing anything needs-based, exhibit A is what I just did. I went from doctrinal discussion straight into needs base, and you responded immediately like someone struck a match. We're programmed to do that. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't a trick. I'm telling you how my wife and I are moving this year, how we're trusting God for increase. We don't care what anybody says. We're willing to take the persecution for having more than, than enough. Right? But we've got to get to the place where we settle into here doctrine and allow ourselves to be trained in the earth. Listen to me, I'm about to get into the lesson real quickly. There are three different types of doctrine that you have to be aware of. There's the doctrine of men. The Bible, Jesus told the, uh, the, uh, the Pharisees, he said, he says, in vain do you worship God 
teaching for commandments the doctrine of men. When we teach the doctrine of men, our worship becomes vanity. In other words, God will be present while we're worshiping and acknowledge none of it. Because what we're, what we're moving on is the, is the doctrine of men. Everybody say the doctrine of men. This, teaching for doctrine, the commandment of men. This is the doctrine of men. But there are also doctrines of devils. The Bible says doctrines of demons create perilous times where people become lovers of themselves. The more demons begin to infiltrate, and uh, a matter of fact, along with doctrine of devils are seducing spirits. They seduce us into things that appeal to our flesh, and all of a sudden we change the truth of God into a lie and wonder why our children struggle. Right? So, and, and, and I want to say something that's interesting. When, when we... When we suppress the truth in unrighteousness and allow seducing spirits to teach doctrines of devils, children are born. Um, I want to use the, the right word. Children are born with struggles. When people say, I was born this way, you say, no, you weren't, you learned it. No, no. If all it takes for children to be born with identity crisis is for us to suppress the truth in unrighteousness and change the truth of God into a lie, preaching doctrine of devils. Or allowing the doctrine of devils to prevail unchecked. That's all it takes. There's physical disability, there's spiritual, mental. All these, these things are born into the earth when we don't check doctrine of devils. And the third set of doctrine is the doctrine of Christ from Hebrews chapter 6. There's three separate groups of doctrine. In the church, we should teach the doctrine of Christ. The foundational principles of the doctrine of Christ can be found in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1, 2, and 3. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrine of baptism, the doctrine of laying on of hands, doctrine of, of resurrection from the dead, and number six, doctrine of eternal judgment. There's only six foundational principles of the doctrines of Christ. Pull out your, your digital your device, please, quickly. I'm talking to you. I, I'm, I'm actually telling you stuff I think you know. You look at me like, we don't know what you're talking about. Get, 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 your, get your Bibles out. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Real quickly, I'm, I'm going to answer this question and I'm, I'm going to get into the word. We're about to go all over the place today. Y'all ready? Yeah, okay, y'all get ready to go with me. In Hebrews chapter 6, when you're there, signify by saying amen. Okay, let me get there with you because I'm nowhere close. I did not intend to go to this today. We're getting there. Give me a second. Here we are. I'm reading from the English Standard uh, Version of the Bible. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Notice Paul calls this, the, or the writer of Hebrews, rather, calls this the elementary doctrine of Christ. Everyone say elementary doctrine of Christ. When you think elementary, what do you think? Basic. You think the first grades in school, right? That means that what I'm about to read to you are the first, it's the first block of instruction you should have received when you gave your life to Christ. The problem with this is, this is, everybody say foundational. If you don't build the foundation right, everything else you build on top of that is going to be suspect. And it's going to be subject to damage. So if your life is not built on these principles, understanding these six things, and actually some teach that there's three, actually three groups of two. They go together. But let's, let's in, uh, itemize them individually. If you don't understand these things, if you've never been taught these things, that means when you see them at work or when you are engaged in them, you don't even know what you're doing. These are the foundational elementary principles of the doctrine of Christ. And here's what he says. 
Um, he says, therefore, let us leave the doc elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of, and he says, repentance from what? Uh, like, repentance from what? When people hear repentance from dead works, they think repentance from sin, right? Wrong. Repentance from dead works and sinful works are two different things. When you came to Christ, immediately it's impossible for you to get into the kingdom with your sins. The first thing that happens when you receive Jesus Christ is that he relieves you of the guilt of the burden, or I should say the burden of the guilt of your sins. In other words, all the sins that you've ever committed, all the sins that you will have, he, he takes your sins and he relieves you of the burden of your sin. That is the, that is the gospel. Is that your sins, plural, past, present, and future are already forgiven. And that's the part of the gospel that he says, if you believe this, because it's a difficult thing to believe, your sins, are, everybody say, my sins are forgiven. Say it again, Allah, say, my sins are forgiven. The danger of me saying this, and the reason preachers don't preach this, is because some believe if we tell you that, then you just go sin. Right? But that's not wise, because sin is still deadly. And it still draws consequences, and it still has a wage to it. The wages of sin is something is going to die when you sin. You're going to miss something. You're going to mess something up when you sin. Jesus was seen in several situations saying, he said, go and sin no more. He told one guy in John 5, sin no more lest a worse thing happen to you. Which indicates that when we sin, especially intentionally, we open doors to demonic forces to destroy parts of our lives, right? But because this is true, it does not negate the truth that your sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. And it's troubling your soul. I can see it on your face. Say that loud. My sins are in Christ. Say that. My sins are forgiven. Say out loud again. Come on. You should, you should see you try to make yourself say that. You think, but Pastor, you don't understand. No, you don't understand the gospel that you're involved in. Watch this now. So he says the first principle, elementary principle, is repentance from dead works. Well, what are dead works? Dead works are the activities I involve myself in when I still carry the notion that this can't possibly be true. The finished work of Jesus Christ can't possibly be enough for God to accept me. So instead of doing good works for the sake of good works, I do good works so that God can really accept me. Everything I do, it's, it's not even about, it's not even about uh, me trying to be a blessing outside of myself. I do this because I feel like I need to do this good to make up for the bad that I still struggle with. The Bible calls these dead works. Necros egran, ergon. What it simply means, I'm, I'm doing this work in a dead effort to try to make up ground because I don't believe that Jesus paid it all. So the Bible says, watch this, the first thing I have to do is repent from dead works. I have to repent of it. What's rep if I got to change my mind about the works I do to try to work my way to God. God loves me when I'm not, when I'm not doing right. Uh, this is not an encouragement to do wrong. I'm just saying when I'm struggling, when I'm, when I'm not uh, mobile, when I'm not doing anything, God loves me. He doesn't love me because I'm doing the right thing. He loves me because he has already done the right thing concerning me. He's accepted me. 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, we have not received the spirit of fear and slavery. No, we receive the spirit of sonship. God made us a son. Okay, I didn't want to get into this today. So, so the, first, the first principle is repentance from dead works. Number two, faith towards God. Not just that I have faith, but my faith is directed towards God. I don't depend on myself. I'm just depending on him. Number three is the doctrine of baptisms, plural. Okay, not just one baptism. There's the, there was a baptism of, of, of coming into the body of Christ. Matter of fact, before you were water baptized, the Bible says that you were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. That's the first baptism. The second baptism is when I submitted to water baptism. And then you were baptized in the Holy Ghost, right? And then you're going to be baptized into suffering. We count at least four different baptisms. And you have to be well versed in every single different baptism. Before you even submitted to water, you were baptized into, into the body of Christ. Then being baptized into the body of Christ, you submitted to water, you were baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, you, you, you make a public declaration, I'm going to live my life for Jesus. The third baptism should be the baptism in the Holy Spirit, where at some point the Spirit overwhelms you, you come as blurred in tongues. That's the part of it. And the fourth baptism is when you're walking with the Lord, the Lord says, now they're ready to serve me in the capacity to which I've called them to. And then he baptizes me into suffering. I take the cup from him and I suffer my way into, into maturity. I suffer my way into effectiveness. You say, I just, I want that what he has. No, 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 no. It doesn't come by, by choosing it. It doesn't come by education. You suffer your way into maturity. You refuse to back down when the devil challenges you and you have to suffer. You, you, you put in a constraint and you don't mind going through the difficulty to get to where you need to go. You decide, I am going to serve Jesus. And you're baptized into a suffering where the world is going that way, you're going this way, and you do not care. It's a baptism. Okay? The fifth. Is it the th where am I? The Number four, the laying on of hands. The doctrine of the laying on of hands speaks of, of laying on of hands for healing, laying on of hands for impartation, laying on of hands for separation into, uh, into calling and gifting. So the, the, this is a real uh, um, ministry that's a part of the basic things we learn about Christ. And here's what I want to share with you. When people lay their hands on you, most believers don't even know what happens or what can happen. So you believe weird stuff that people can transfer spirits to you through lit. It's not in the Bible. But no one has ever taught you. But here's the problem. A lot of people in pulpits and people who post on social media have never learned the, the foundational principles, the elementary stuff. They never went to elementary school. So they're trying to do algebra, but they never learned math. They're trying to do the hard stuff. Addressed, but they've never learned the basic stuff. So they're teaching you. So most of your spirituality, listen to this, is not supernatural thinking. It's superstitious thinking. The supernatural, watch this now. The supernatural believer is a believer that, that uh, believes God, that trusts God. The superstitious believer fears everything they can't see. And they're subject to demons transforming themselves into angels of light. And they would even uh, walk into an, on a fence and think it's an assignment from God. Please hear what I'm saying. Now, now the reason I'm trying to, to get us to, I'm going to get us to a place 
my, I'm going to get us to place. My assignment is to bring us to a place in the Lord where we have a church full of believers that don't need the pulpit to be effective. Listen to what I'm saying. The honor for those who stand before us will increase. But the need. You're not going to be in my inbox saying pray for me. You will not have to rally a group of people to intercede before God and before. Watch this. And by the time you, 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 your, your prayers go before God, we will hear what God is doing. The leaders will hear in the spirit about what God is doing with you. You will bring, you will bring your victory to church with you and we all going to rejoice around it. Yeah. Laying on of hands. Uh, this one, resurrection from the dead is the fifth principle. What do you know about the resurrection from the dead? What do you know about when you leave your body? What happens? Those who have gone on before. These are basic principles. But number six is what the, what the question was about, and I want to address this. It's about eternal judgment. She asked the question, how do we reconcile the truths of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. So I want to talk to you about those quickly. Uh, and that may, be, they may take the whole time today. The question that she's at, the, the, uh, uh, this viewer who watched the, uh, maybe a, a partner as well, I don't know, who watched me teach on Umayyad, said that she doesn't understand how it's possible that the Bible speaks of God judging us, but he said he will not remember our sins anymore. It does not, it does not square with her. Remember now, Hebrews chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 16, I believe it is, is, speak, is speaking to the believer. Everyone say the believer. The one of the things you have to understand is that the Bible was written to believers. But it, but it covers things that deals with unbelievers. You have, and, and also some things that, that pertain to the Jews. So you have to discern what's for us, what's for the world, and what's for the Jews. Because if you, watch this, how many of you are familiar with the, with the uh, sacrificial system in the Old Testament? You familiar with that? How familiar are you? What was the purpose of the sin offering, the guilt offering, the burnt offering, the meal offering? Then you're not familiar with it. You've heard about it. And, the, and here's what Paul taught the churches, the, the Gentile churches. You don't have to know that to be a Christian. You don't have to learn Hebrew to be a good Christian. It helps. You don't have to know Greek. I'd know Greek. And sometimes it doesn't help any when I'm under attack. <laughs> right? It helps me understand, but it doesn't, help me, it doesn't help me win all the time. So there's certain things you don't have to know being a believer. Right? But, but we think, well, I, I know about it. No, you don't. And there's some things you just don't know. It's not for you. What's for you is what you need to know. Now, Paul, the, the, the question that was asked is about 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So I want to go there real quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to speak to what my sister asked, because I think it's a good question. Um, let's see, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I, I'm all over the place with this thing. I want you to go there with me. I want you to, to check it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 6. I want everybody to go with, with me, because we're doing this is a doctrinal teaching today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Everybody there? Okay, here's what it says. I'm reading from the, e, uh, the ESV. It says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Verse 10, this is what challenged her. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. How many of you see that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 teaches that when you leave your body, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, right? Now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, if you go there, I'm going to come back to, to uh, this one, but in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and I'm just not in the right outline to, to do this. Give me a second. You, you, I want you to go find Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. When you all are there, signify by saying name. Say, we there. Okay, good. Pastor, coming right now. Because this software is working me out this morning. Okay, here we go. It's 20, verse 11. There you go. Here's what it says. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Understand, everybody look at me for a minute. According to this scripture in Revelation 20, when, when this particular judgment happens, books are going to be open, multiple books. The, the Greek word is the word biblio. What does that sound like? Bible. Say it out loud, sound like what? Bible. So here's what, the, it's, when you read this in the Greek, it says Bibles will be open. I'm going to say something to you that's going to blow your mind. You see how we read people's story in the Bible? You know the word biblio just means book, right? There are Bibles being written on you. There are scribes assigned to your life. And they're documenting everything about you. What's critical, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but I want you to see is that it says books were open, and then it said, but then a, a particular book, the book of life was open. This is the doctrine of eternal judgments that we don't hear a lot about. And for some people in the room, it's going to make you seriously uncomfortable, and it should. But some of us is going to confirm for you some things you don't know. Here's what he says. And the sea, verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the what? The lake of fire. So the lake of fire is called the what? Okay, now, everybody look up at me. You say, wait a minute. I'm confused. Everybody confused? If you, if, that's not enough people confused for me to explain it. A anybody ask them, anybody confused? Oh, that's only, not even half the room. Oh, we, could, we could just go. Okay, I'll try it again one last time. How many of you are confused by this? Thank you. Let me explain to you. What you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is the, about the judgment seat of Christ. It specifically says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, it's the judgment seat of Christ. Say that out loud, the in Revelation chapter 20, what you just read, he said, then I saw a great white throne judgment. Everybody said the white throne. They're two separate judgments, and they're not for the same group of people. Okay? And the Bible, the, the matter of fact, the Bible confirms that. Romans 14 speaks of it as well, that every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and sometimes it's called the judgment seat of God. But the, the great white throne judgment is totally different. It's the second, matter of fact, the people 
um, the Bible talks about the, the second death, which is interesting. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it said, Is it appointed unto men once to die? After that, the judgment. The appointment that God makes for each person that's born is that you're going to die one time, and then you're going to stand before judgment. The fact that now there's a second death says that somebody missed their appointment. Let's talk about that. So the first, this is the first judgment, 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, is the judgment seat of Christ. Here's what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. First of all, everyone there has a book written on them. Imagine you're living your life, you're going along, along and there's a scribe, a, sign, a scribe angel, just for the sake of it, is assigned to your life. And writing everything down that you're doing good and bad. And then one day you hear a message, and you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that book is closed. And that book is sealed in blood. The scribe angel takes another book, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where it says that we were born again by faith, and we were given good works. We are, we are the workmanship of Christ, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. In other words, there's assignment on our lives now. We have a purpose in Christ. The angel now, the, the scribe angel that's following you is not writing down sins. That's in the Bible. What he is writing down is your assignment and the way you conduct your assignment. Listen to, listen to this. So, so, the, so the, Bema, the judgment seat of Christ is called the Bema seat of Christ. B-E-M-A. Everybody say Bema seat. Bema seat. Come on now. I want you to start educating. Say the Bema seat of Christ. Bema. Now, the word Bema is, is, is a word, and the Romans knew this word well. It's a, a word associated with the Olympic Games. So to give you a good idea of what the judgment seat of Christ does... In, um, there are certain sports that are judged by speed and strength. There's, there's not a, a rating system on those sports. Like, for example, if we're racing, one of us is going to win. All right? If it's a photo finish, the, 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 the photo is going to tell us who won. In boxing, to some degree, there's a rating. We, the, the judges have to score cards. All right? In, in, in gymnastics... It's not, it's not really speed and strength. It's execution. How did they carry out certain things? Right? And judges will give you a rating anywhere from a 1 to a 10. Right? Have you ever watched a dunk contest? Have you ever seen the judges sitting at the beamer seat waiting for the next dunk? Have you ever seen them respond when a person does like a crazy dunk and everyone stands on gift 10? That's, the, that, that's called the Bema seat. Where the judges sit is the Bema seat. It's the place where the grading happens. And so what happens is, like let's say our, our gymnast is doing a skill. The, the, the experts at the Bema seat knows the skill. And they say, mm, a deduction right there for that. Mm, that wasn't well. Oh, that was well done. I give him a 10. That's, that's the beamer seat of Christ is how God looks at the, the, uh, the, the job that he gave us to do, the assignments, and he rates us based on motivation. Matter of fact, some of the things that they do at, at beamer seat at the Olympic Games is they, they, judge, uh, they judge execution, they judge creativity, right? They, they, judge, they judge skill, right, In, to some degree, and they give you an overall grade. That's what it's going to be like at the beamer seat of Christ. You're going to show up and the Lord's going to say, yeah, a million people got saved to your ministry, but for the first five years of it, you weren't doing it for me, you were doing it for you. Deduction. 
What about this one? You got up there in obedience every Sunday. You did what you were asked to do with the right heart and the right spirit. And I saw you every time. And it didn't feel like they weren't celebrating you like they celebrated everybody else. But you, I was pleased, 10. The Bible says, concerning the beamer seat of Christ, that it's possible that you could go through the entire beamer seat of Christ. And because you were so jacked up in the way you ex- executed your, your purpose, that you would literally get all zeros. It said your works will be lost, but you will be saved. So the judgment, the beam of seat of Christ is not about whether you're going to heaven or where you're going to hell. It's about how you executed what God gave you to do. The foregone conclusion is you're saved because of Jesus Christ. Your works don't save you. Your works give you reward. Everybody say reward. reward. Your works give you reward. Believe it or not, you say, I, I do all these good things and nobody ever thanks me. It's because God won't let them. God is saving some of your reward. Down here you get awards, up there you get rewards. What God wants to do is he wants to give you rewards that remain. Awards get old. After a certain amount of time, I've seen athletes and and music stars selling their awards for money. Some Olympic people, uh, Olympic athletes are selling their medals. You know why? Because after a while, a medal sitting on a, on a, a shelf or a trophy means nothing. So they sell it for money to get something they could use. So God will hold back on giving you what you earned so that when he does give it to you, it's eternal. The Bema seat of Christ is not a, a seat of, of, of judgment. It's a seat of reward. How many of you got that? That took every bit of five, ten minutes. Okay. Now. Revelation 20 verse 11 is totally different. The white throne judgment is for the people who refused to accept that God sent his son to pay the full price of their sin, to carry the full weight of their wrong. And, and the, oh, listen, and when you read down, there's a list, I think it's in Revelation 20, of the different types of people who went to hell. And you say, see, people go to hell for this. People, no, people only go to hell for one reason. One, you know what it is? It's not, see, it's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? No. Matter of fact, let me speak to that. So, so here's the thing about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The conditions under which that sin could be committed no longer exists. In other words, the, the, the blasphemy, you never see anyone else teaching about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Read Paul's writings. He does not talk about it. In our time, what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject the finished work of Jesus Christ. The only thing that sends you to hell is you say, you know what, I don't, I, I'm good. I'll stand before God for myself. And God says, okay. The thing is, if you stand before God without Jesus, remember the angel? Remember the scribe angel? He's following you around. He's writing everything you're doing, right? The book is being kept. And if you never accept Jesus Christ and give your life to him, that scribe angel will follow you all the way to the end. And then when you die, the book is closed, but the book will be open again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, verse, verse 11. He's going to deal with you at the, at the great white throne judgment, and the books will be opened. The difference is that book was not sealed by blood. You have no representative. You have to stand before the eternal judge yourself and give account for every deed that you did in the body. The difference with the, between the believer and the unbeliever is the one who received Jesus Christ. When that book comes up, Jesus is standing there with you. And that book is never opened because Jesus is standing with you. And all he has to do is show the receipts of your redemption in his hands 
on his, on, his, on his crown, in his side, on his feet. He, listen, the receipts of your salvation, he's, he's standing right there. He's bearing witness that you're saved. That book never opens. Your, you, your, your, your sins are literally covered forever. That's Bible. But in the, in the great right throne judgment, it's not so. In the great right throne judgment, the books will be open and they will go down every single line of your life. And you have, and by the end of it, the Bible says, every person will go, God, you've been fair to me. And every knee shall, and every tongue shall. You know that word confess means it will give praise and allegiance to God and say you are righteous. You've always done right by me because then there'll be no deception in the great white throne judgment. Everyone will see everything clearly and say, man, God, you did me right. I didn't do you right. And the Bible says when the whole judgment is done, he'll take the whole lot. By the way, hell, hell, I think we have the wrong idea of hell. Hell is the lake of fire. Hell is, how is hell the lake of fire when the Bible says that death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire? If death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire, the death, by the way, is he's speaking of the grave, right? It was th- so there's no, he's going to burn the grave. There's no need for the grave. But the, the occupiers of hell will be thrown into the lake of fire. Here's what I want you to get. When you think of hell, hell is like a county jail. It's a spiritual holding cell, according to the scriptures, that if you leave your body without Jesus Christ, if you leave your body and you don't know Jesus Christ, if you, if you dare leave your body thinking that you could, you could finagle your sin with God, you go to a holding tank and, and you're held there. The thing about it, the people say, well, you know, oh, this life is terrible. I'm going to just take my old life. And they will say something like, like, oh, I'm going to end it all. Now, I'm, I don't say this in any way to be insensitive, but I want to explain something to you. You're not ending it all. You're beginning it all. And while I will not do a whole teaching on um, self-harm, and all, I have a whole outline on that, or a series that I teach on this. I'm not going to address that now, but I'll say this. When you leave your body, you are more alive than you've ever been. The body is literally a limitation. It's a restriction. You are a spiritual being that has been assigned a body. Listen to the language of Paul. Paul says that you should know how to possess your vessel in holiness. He calls your body a vessel. Like, you, like, you're, like you're like a space captain and you've been assigned a vessel. To dwell in the earth. And when that vessel is done, you have to leave that, the, the earth. Because you can't stay in the earth without that vessel. See how that works? So when you leave, you go. In, in, in the book of Revelation, John said, and I saw the souls of them who were beheaded for the gospel under the altar. Wait a minute. You saw souls? What do souls look like? And he started talking about souls and describing the souls just like though they had a body. The reason your body is shaped the way it's shaped is because your soul is shaped this way. You say, my soul. No, 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 no. It's just more to you than, it's more to you than you realize. Is this, is this freaking anybody out? Good. It shouldn't. Then again, it should. How many of you are understanding this? So when you read the scripture, according to the book of Revelation, what happens is that when, when all is done, and everything is finished, and God is getting ready to, to make the new heaven and the new earth. The last thing he does 
is he sends for the, for the, uh, the captives, the ones who have been held prisoner in the spiritual holding cell. And, and listen, generations of people are going to stand before him. People who were famous in the earth, people that no one knew are going to stand before him. They all have one thing in common. People say, well, you, you go to, you're going to go to hell for that sin? No, no, no. People go to hell for one reason. It's, the, it's because they have no savior. They did not accept the, the offer of God to have the Savior forgive their sins. And watch this. The important part about this is when you stand before God, Jesus is going to be with you. Matter of fact, the Bible says, you heard me say this before, there's a seal on you right now. The, the, the whole, if you have the Holy Spirit, and if you're born again, you do. Um, the Bible says we've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as an earnest on our salvation, as proof and guarantee that God is going to keep his word concerning us. He put his spirit in us so that when we leave here, we are ushered into his presence. Watch this. And we're not alone. So the question that was asked, I, I pray that I, I took half the, the message to, to explain that. And here's what you need to gather. I think the gist of it is this. You need to be a part of the first resurrection. How do you do that? You accept Jesus Christ. That's our gospel. And when I, was, when I got up this morning, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I've, I've moved from the place where I depend on my oratory skills or my deep studies to win your hearts to the Lord. I get up in the morning and I, I spend time with God. And here's what I ask God to do. Convince them that what I'm saying is the truth of your word. Let me tell you why. Because what we have done is we have, we have birthed a whole church a generation of believers that don't know the gospel. How many of you learned something from that, that explanation? That was for the, someone wrote me an inbox. That's not the lesson for today. That was just that. How much time do I have left? <laughs> How long did that take? I got 20 minutes. Okay. <laughs> I do have 20 minutes. Okay, good. How many of you ready for the word? <laughs> no, can I do something? Can I, who has a question about what I just said? Seriously, you have a question about what I just taught. Anybody have a question? No, ask me. Okay. You say, well, we, that church asks questions on Sunday morning. Yes, we do. I'm going to tell you, what I just said to you is the difference between life and death. So here's what I want to do. How many of you got saved? I want to ask the question again. You got born again because you heard about hell and it scared you. Put your hand up. Can you do me the honor? Can you do me the honor of praying with you right at this moment? So that you, what I want you to do, I want your relationship with God to not be based on fear. I want it to be based on love. And so I'm going to re represent the gospel to you. In this sovereign moment, this whole, in this holy space. Here's a simple gospel. By act of rebellion and betrayal, God lost his family. But before he created man, he decided 
If man ever chooses against me because he did not want a machine, he did not want a robot, he did not want artificial intelligence, he said, if man ever chooses against me, I am going to initiate this plan to get my family back. And what God did is he sent his son. And Jesus came as one of us, a body just like us. He came to die not just for us, but as us. His right relationship with God, he gave that to us. He took our sin. He knew no sin, but he took our sin to the cross. And he allowed himself by the plan of God to be killed on a Roman cross. And he refused to, let, to, to exonerate himself because he knew if he stopped dying, we'd never get a chance to live. And in that love, in that compassion, in that desire to forgive God's people so we could be back with our Father, Jesus laid his life down. But he promised on the third day he would rise from the dead if, as proof that the payment for our sin was fulfilled. It's like a person going to jail. When, once they serve the whole sentence and they come out, you cannot be charged again. So we can't be charged again because he died in our place. And it's, it's, that is the love of God. That is the love of Christ. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not even about, listen, for, for the believer, yes, hell is a real thing. If we, if we had never given our life to Jesus Christ, yes, we'd be destined and doomed for hell. But because Jesus died and we heard that message and we believe that message, now we are called of God to be sons of God. And Jesus has wiped our slate clean. And now he waits on the other side of the curtain, the invisible realm, for us to come to him and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You went through the whole process. Now enjoy all this. How many of you heard the gospel today for the first time? Okay, you heard the gospel? If you heard the gospel, you said, Pastor, I was one of those people that got saved out of fear. I want you to stand right now, right now, right now, right where you are. Pastor, why are you doing this? People already in their ministry, they're already prophets, the teachers. Let me tell you something. Because if you live your life with a fearful expectation of condemnation, every time something goes wrong, you're going to say, it's because God doesn't love me. And every time the enemy attacks you, you're going to say, it's because, it's because I did something wrong. You'll always be looking over your shoulder, wondering. Now you know it was never about, it was never about hell. For you, it was always about that God saw you. And the angel that scripted your life, that's going around right now, they are so, the angels are rejoicing, not because you've been saved, but it was based on the fear of disappointing God. Now it's going to be based on the faith of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I don't even know why the Holy Spirit led me like this because I have pages of notes I'm supposed to be teaching you that I spent a lot of time preparing and studying and, and getting ready to revelate. <laughs> Lift your hands to the Lord. Close your eyes. Lift your hands to the Lord. I want you to repeat after me. Say, Father, I receive the gift of Jesus, the gift of grace, the gift of righteousness, the gift of the forgiveness of sins. It's not of works, lest I begin to boast, but it's by faith in the finished work of Jesus. I receive your love for me. Wait, wait. Don't, don't rush past it. Say, I receive your love for me. I will search no more for love. I found love in you. Now I can, I can believe that everything I go through in my life, you are with me 
you never leave me nor forsake me. Now today, after walking with Jesus in fear for all these years, I cast aside the fear and I receive the love. Now I say I'm saved, not because I'm afraid, but because I'm accepted in the beloved. I am a son or daughter of God. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, now it begins. Now it begins. Now it begins. You may be seated. Ah, I feel the Lord. <laughs> if you don't think that matters, it matters to God. Everybody say, matters to me. I had to do that. I want, I want to, uh, so I felt little of the Lord to address that this morning and not to dismiss. For you, the person that asked the question, thank you so much for, for um, allowing us to address that. I want to just do a part of what I was going to teach because we don't have a whole lot of time to do anything else. Uh, condemnation is one of the crippling effects of sin. Condemnation is a death sentence. When we live our lives with this fearful expectation of judgment, there, there are about four things that happen. I want to read them to you real quickly. Number one, when you are li- if you're living your life in fear of God, not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord means I have a deep respect for God. And what God thinks about me matters and, and pleasing God matters to me. That's the fear of the Lord. But being afraid of God is unhealthy. Because you cannot be afraid of God and be, in fear, and be in faith with God at the same time. Faith and fear can dwell in the same heart, but they can't operate at the same time. The one, the one will always uh, suppress or outdo the other. You understand that? So four things happen when we live our lives with a fearful expectation of judgment. Number one, we put ourselves at odds with God. At odds with God. Whenever we fail or feel like we aren't living up to his standard, then all of a sudden um, we're at odds with him. We feel that God doesn't love us. And that's why when when you're in this mindset, when you do something wrong, you don't read your Bible. When you do something wrong, you you can't pray. It's because you, you fear that because you displease the Lord, he won't love you. Because in your mind, God only loves you when you're doing right. So we, we see salvation as a morality club that only accepts perfect people or perfection as currency. I want, let, me, let me say this. So the way you, we see this, when, when we are living in this fearful expectation of judgment, what we tend to do is, if we get it wrong, then we try to, we try to use works to buy our way back to God. But we always keep in our minds a sense that I, that I did something wrong and Satan plays on that. Number two, when we live our lives with a fearful expectation of judgment, we live in fear. And that fear leads to a slow burning stress that invites physical, emotional, and mental sickness into our lives. A lot of times, watch this, go, your church life is what's stressing you out. No, no, you, you know it's true. I mean, you're looking at other people do what they do. You think to yourself, if I could do that, I won't have this stress on me. The things that you could pull off financially if you weren't limited by your religion. 
But God did not call you to religion. He calls you to a relationship with, with him where you could express purpose. You could, you could do what he's called you to do. When we live our lives with a fearful expectation of judgment, we judge others harshly and mercilessly. And here's why. Because we live our lives in this unholy, unhealthy confinement of rules, regulations, and restrictions. And this is the part, I want to address this today just for a moment. I'm going to come back to that one. Number four, when we live our lives with a fearful expectation of judgment, we never develop a loving relationship with God. We live our lives as fearful slaves and not as favored sons. So, so I want to speak to number three. We judge others harshly and mercilessly because we live our lives in this unholy, unhealthy confinement. In the book of Matthew chapter 7, there is an interesting uh, discourse uh, concerning uh, believers and our lives with God. It has to do with judging others. The Bible says in, in Matthew chapter 7, and, and you know, you said, well, Pastor, I heard one message today. What you heard was me asking a question. Don't get it twisted. I'm just very thorough when I answer questions. <laughs> I want to make sure that we could. But there's a word of the Lord you need to take with you. Okay? And this is a critical word. When you read about a reprobate mind in the book of Romans chapter 1, it is immediately associated with same-sex attraction or identity crisis. But do you know when you read the text... It never speaks of the reprobate mind being attached to. That reprobate mind is addressed after the address about same-sex attraction and identity crisis. But we take it and we marry it and we say a person who is struggling with identity it has a reprobate mind. The Bible never says that. As a matter of fact, what the Bible does mention as reprobation are gossips as slanderers? No, there's a whole list, and it does not include that. Now, I'm not, I'm not exonerating anyone. I'm just saying, let's get it right. Okay? Because what, we're what we tend to do is prejudge a situation or prejudge a sin and say that sin is worse than others. I'm going to say this. There are some sins that are worse because of the immediacy of the judgment that comes with them. But, it, but on the scale of, 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 of our performance and the scale of how God sees it, it's all the same. Please follow me as I go in this lesson. In Matthew chapter 7, there, it speaks of, of us appraising each other's lives with wounded eyes, with wounded, damaged perception. What we tend to do, and this is interesting, what we tend to do is see each other um, from the perspective of, of, I know who you are. Matthew 7 verse 1 says, judge not and you will not be judged. For with the measure that you use, to judge others, you yourself will be judged. The, I want to talk to you real quickly about how we form judgments about each other. Most of the time, erroneous judgments are made about people because, or, or we tend to judge people because we, we do something that we don't pay attention to. It's called, in, in our modern terminology, it's called prejudiced. The word prejudice means to prejudge a situation. So we look at a person based on how they appear and how they present and maybe how they speak. Or we kind of we look at, in, in our culture, their race or their, or their ethnicity, whatever the situation is, and we form opinions about them. Then we consider the facts. But the problem is once I form judgment in my heart about a person, the facts really don't matter because the judgment was made. Now, I've already decided that you are blank. Now let's find out what kind of blank you are. 
I want to say it again. Pre, in, in Matthew chapter 7, judge not and you will not be judged. It's, it's speaking of, I've already decided what you are. Now I, need to, now I need to figure out what kind you are. And I may befriend you, and I may walk with you, I may hang out with you. But I've already determined what you are. And if, in, invariably what the Lord allows to happen is that something goes wrong, we begin to, to, to irritate each other. Then what you really Think about me. Your opinion that you formed before we even met, that comes to the surface. And you say, well, you say, well, when did you start thinking that about me? They thought it from the beginning. The, the problem, though, is uh, when the Bible says with the, me the measure you meet will be measured to you again. Let's talk about this metron. The, uh, the metrics that you use to judge others is a seed that you sow in your own garden. Now, I want you to think about this. Ask yourself the question, how do I judge people? You say, oh, Pastor, you know what, what they did. Is that the, measure, is that the standard that you use? Is, the standard for, is your standard for judgment what people do? Let me poll the room. How many of you say, Pastor, you know, I, just, I have a thing about, yeah, I like people to be kind of upright. So how many of you judge people based on what they do? Put your hand up. Anybody trying to answer? They ain't trying to respond. <laughs> oh, you, wait, you're going to participate today. How? How many of you say, Pastor, I judge, I'm, I'm watching what you do. Okay, how many you judge people by what they say? How, you just, how many of you are discerners and you can look at a person and tell? I'm praying for those, no. So watch this, this is, this is critical. In honesty, watch this. So uh, the people, how many of you judge by people, people by what they do? That means people judge you by what you do. How many of you judge people by what they say? Then expect that same judgment. How many of you can discern a person? Just look at them and tell. Now, less hands went up. But let me show you this. The, the, the Bible says it's simple. The measure that you use will be measured to you again. But when, when the scripture goes on to speak on this topic, the question is asked. Here's the question. It says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? Listen, listen to the Passion Translation. I think it's fascinating. In, in verse 3, the Passion Translation says, Why would you focus on the flaw in someone else's life, yet fail to notice the glaring flaws of your own? How can you say to a friend, let me show you where you're wrong, when you're guilty of even more? Verse 5 says, listen, you're, you're being hypocritical, a hypocritical and a hypocrite. Now, so the Bible addresses two things. Hypercriticism, right? And being a hypocrite. Let's deal with these two things. They're not the same. Hypercriticism is when every, whenever you look at a situation, there's nothing in you that registers compassion. Everything that you see, you, you judge from where you stand. Your circle is the center of the universe and everything else is out there. And watch this. And so you, you're literally sitting in a seat of judgment and calling yourself the standard by judging others. But the Bible says the problem with the, your judgment is it's coming from a wounded perception. It's coming from a wounded perception. In other words, the reason you see people and don't instinctively love them, you have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, the first thing he does is that he sheds the love of God abroad in your heart. He pours out God's love into your heart. 
If God can look at a person that's blatantly sinning, know everything about them, and, and show them mercy and compassion, but when you look at them, you want to kill them, or you want to judge them, or you want to talk about it, watch this. It means that you're not operating in the love of God. Your perception is wounded. The idea, when, when you read this from, from oh, the King James, let me read a different translation. Listen to what the King James says. The King James makes this statement, and I think it's, it's, it's good to you. He said, why beholdest thou the mote that's in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam? So the picture is almost comical. is a piece of two by four sticking out of your head. Jesus, Jesus was really, really comical. He, he, this is a hyperbole he used. A, there's, a, there's a piece of wood. Imagine this. You come up to a person saying, you got a speck in your eye, but a whole two by four is coming out your head. The person is having to duck because every time you turn, get the picture. He, he, was, he was trying to show you how foolish it is that you're going to say, well, I know what their problem is. No, the, the problem is, is in you. And if you get, and watch this, and if you get, if you get the right kind of mirror, you'll see that the reason that you're seeing things the way you see is because the lens that you have is an internal wound. Some of you see people through the lens of broken trust. Some of you see people through the lens of abandonment. Some of you see some of us no, some of us see people through the lens of our our quote-unquote introversion. And we're judging people based on not how they are, but based on how we are. The danger with that, though, is that we just did a whole discord on judgment. Uh, the Bible says this. What we tend to do is we, don't, we, we are not capable of stopping at judgment. When we enter in, especially, watch this, when you move into a situation and you are, you are prejudiced or you, are, you, are, you operate in prejudgment, what you tend to do is say this person is black because they are, or this person is white, so they are, this person is Latino, or this person is poor, and you start putting people, and so you can drop bombs on a whole civilization of people and use the Bible to say, well, you know, Israel is God's people. But I'm going to tell you something. We could be God's people and not commit genocide. No, no, wait. You don't have to respond. I didn't say that for your response. I'm, tr- I'm trying to give you context. How is it possible for this to be happening in the Middle East? It's possible because the, the, a judgment has been formed. These are not real people. And when we look at it in the news, we say, how can they do that? But we do it to each other all the time. What we have in common in this house and in every church house is that every person that's here from the, pul- from the pulpit to the parking lot came to the Lord with need. We didn't bring anything to the Lord that he needed. We came to be forgiven of our sins. We came to be saved. We came to be transformed, correct? So why are we sitting back watching each other's uh, uh, imperfections? Why are you surprised that I'm flawed? Why does it surprise you? Do, do you not, watch this. You say, well, well, I just think they should have been transparent. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have at least one thing in your past? I'm not talking about your long past, your long, I'm talking about your immediate past. That you are so ashamed of, you don't want to tell folk about it. I'm waiting, you're lying So let me show you something. And for some, it's not in our past. It's a struggle. 
See, we, the, 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 the judgmental person takes for granted that people involved in sin just love sin and hate God. There are people involved in sin and they are prisoners. They are prisoners of DNA. They're prisoners of something that was passed down to them. And they have been in battle with this thing. And when they come to church thinking it's a safe place, they run into your judgmental. I mean, they run into you. Right? And because, watch this, and, be, and because the, the reprobation of your mind, don't let me get to speak to that, is that you are a chronic critic. All you can do, you sit, you lift to criticize. You, you recruit your friends based on the, on the people that will allow you to criticize others to them. That's all you do. You get off on it. You love it. You scour social media looking for things. There you go. That's you. It's, it's, it's an ugly, wicked seed to sow. But here's what Jesus said. He said, how is it? Here's what Jesus said. How is it that you are... Now, remember, he's not talking about the eye. Let me remove the speck from your eye when you have a, a whole beam or two by four in your eye. No, he's not talking... He's talking about your perception. It's from your heart. He said, your heart is wounded. Your heart is damaged, and you never took the time to get your heart fixed. So, watch this. You're not seeing people right. So, I'm, I'm going to share some... I'm a, be a little translucent uh, to, to help you. I grew up in the house. My father was very harsh. He, was, he, was, he would talk to you, man, and scare the bejesus out of you. The look on his face. I remember one time my brother said, man, let's jump on him. Let's jump on him. <laughs> now, we were in the street. We were, jumping on, we were jumping on mean guy. We were jumping on whole thugs. I'm not about to jump on Leonard Ramsey. This guy, he, something about him terrorized me. I came from him, and I used to try to figure out how am I from him, and he's such a lion, I'm such a sheep. This man was, my brother one time took a rock, and from down the yard he said, he cursed on my dad and threw a rock through the street, glass door. And, and we were speechless. We, we sat like Job's friends. We were like trying to figure out where did he get the gumption to do this? My father was like, like murderously mad. And I was thinking to myself, you done messed up the whole thing for all of us. He was such. And so because of that, when I became a man, anyone that raised their voice to me in my mind, they were the enemy. When I was in the military, my drill sergeant says to me, he says, you're from the streets and you're soft. Soft. I've never been called soft. And here's what he said to me. He said, why is it that when people raise their voice to you, you become intimidated and you want to fight? Stand down. He said, you're a better man than that. And I'm thinking to myself, why is it? All you, no matter what, you could be saying a good thing with a raised voice. and it, You know why? Because I was damaged. There was a wound on the inside of me that caused me to perceive every person. that it, I could not take correct. I would literally, tears would start to come down my eye. A whole thug. Tears will stream down my eyes if a person criticized me. If a person talk, if a person, not, not even criticized, if they critiqued me. I couldn't do talent shows. I was a musician, couldn't do talent shows because I couldn't handle rejection. You know where it came from? It came from growing up in a house where all you had was rejection. So watch this. Now that I come to be a pastor, my first three years of pastoral ministry, I was looking at God's people and judging them based on my home experience. You know what God had to do? God sent me to walk with a pastor for a week. And it was in prayer. I watched this man love his church. And I, I followed, him every, followed him everywhere. And he sat me down. He opened the Bible and began to read to me. And he said, this is who you have to be. He was reading from Timothy. 
He said, you're my spiritual son. And he said, and you are, he said, you're a great teacher, but you're a horrible pastor. And here's why. He starts showing me. And that for the first time, someone criticized me, and I didn't weep. I was intrigued by his boldness. I was taken by, by, by the way he saw me. He was seeing me with clear eyes. And there's a difference. Watch this. What I felt coming from him was not criticism. I felt love. I felt, and that love, when I came home, I went back to work in this church, and the saints started saying, something different about you. You know what it was? Is that I had been loved. When you are condemned, you live like a condemned person. Now I want to take you to John chapter 8. And then we'll be done. We got our, well, six minutes of my time. <laughs> Go with me to John chapter 8. I want to see, can I help us with this? In John chapter 8, that story, are you all there? So what is going on with my Bible today? My Bible is not behaving today. There it is. In John chapter 8, verse 1. John chapter 8. It says, they, they, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2 says, early in the morning he came to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Now, everybody follow this real quickly. Second Temple Jews started a thing where they would come to the temple at sunrise. They came early to pray and to, and to hear teachers teach so that they could be filled spiritually before they went to work or went about their day. So what Jesus would do in this case, if you read of, uh, in John chapter 7, he had had a meeting, he had had a discourse, and he went up into the mountain. When everyone else went home, he went up to the mountain to pray. Early in the morning, he came down back to the temple to meet the people there. This time, he's teaching, and the Bible says in, in verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placed her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Stop. Everybody look at me. I want to help you out. So, so let me share something with you that, that is important. In order for a woman to commit adultery in this time, she either had to be engaged or married. The problem is in Leviticus chapter 20, there's a scripture in the book of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. I'm going to read it to you. Here's what it says. It says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and adulteresses, adulteress rather, shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 20 verse 10. In Deuteronomy 17 verses 6 and 7, it says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and after that, after the hand of all the people shall be upon him as well. So you shall purge evil from the midst. Look at me for a minute. Here's what it says. So a person, is, if a person is caught in adultery, we bring them both. Because we have to establish what we found. The people who saw it, right, after, after discussion is had, they have to pick up stones first. No one is authorized to throw a stone until the witnesses saw it and say they're worthy of death. There's a couple things that come to mind. It would have been one thing if they were guilty of stealing. That's public. If they're guilty of lying. But this, they were guilty of adultery, which means this is, a private, this is a private chamber sin. They didn't have social media. They didn't have cameras, right? They, so how, how did they know what was going on? That's, right? So, so, so this is fishy to me. But, but I want you to follow this. This is a, it's a critical lesson for us. The Bible says they brought, the, they brought this woman to Jesus. The question is, where's the man? 
Watch this. And, and, and preachers have, have, have inserted their own ideas and opinions, but we throw those out today. Here's what he says. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Listen, now, in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a one, right? So what do you say? And this they said to test him. That they may, now, I want to show you what the test is. Moses said she should be stoned. If Jesus had said, don't stone her, he would have insulted Moses. If Jesus had said, stone her, he would have insulted Caesar. Because the Romans don't give them the death penalty. If Jesus had said, uh, I acquit you, he would have actually insulted God. Because God is the one that said adultery was a sin. If Jesus had said, well, send it to another judge, he would have discredited his own messianic ministry. Because a part of the Messiah's job was to uphold the laws of God. They had him what's called a catch-22. And the catch-22 was any decision he made was wrong. I'm going to say something to you. When you take on the ministry of reconciliation, and when you start to teach and to believe that we should not be condemning people, you're going to put yourself in a catch-22. Moses said, Jesus, what do you say? And for what Jesus did, he begins to write on the ground. What he wrote was not as, as significant as the fact that he was buying time. And whatever he was writing, the Bible says, if you, when you read this, the Bible says uh, in verse uh, 7, and they could, he, so he bent down and began to write on the, the ground. And I want you to know this. In the temple, people say he wrote in the dirt. How many of you saw Herod, he wrote in the dirt? Well, th there's a problem with that. There was no dirt in the temple court. It was cobblestone. There was what? Cobblestone. So he's not writing on dirt. He's writing on stone. With his finger. These men are biblical scholars. These are scribes and Pharisees. They're highly developed in how God communicates. He stoops down and begins to write in the stone. What he's writing, we don't know, but the act of writing with his finger on a stone is communicating to them. You're not dealing with a man. You deal with... And so Jesus begins to write in the, in the stone. And the Bible says, watch this, and they, it provoked them, verse 7, and they continued. This, this word in the Greek means that they were pressuring him to answer. They asked him, what are you going to do? And the Bible says he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Now, this is, for, for many of us, I, I, I'm going to leave that. We don't have time for that. Verse 8, and at once, and once more, he bent, once more rather, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman. Now watch this. The King James says something different. The King James says being condemned of being convicted by their own... How many of you, your Bible says that? Being convicted by your own consciences. Yeah, so let me speak to that. The conscience, by definition, is the internal witness. God has put in your human spirit an internal judge. Its job, according to Romans chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, uh, 14 and 15, is to either uh, accuse or excuse you. The purpose of the conscience is to bear witness about the information that you're hearing. And so as Jesus is speaking to them, he activates the internal judge. Conviction is nothing but God's word 
getting down into the conscience and the conscience speaking up from within and saying, you know, you're wrong. So this, they, they entered into this state of self-condemnation. Everyone say self-condemnation. I want to speak to that today real quickly and then we'll be done. The Bible teaches there's four ways to condemn yourself. Now, the danger with self-condemnation is that it's not God's best for you. The reason that, that the Lord activated this in their life is because they were full of sin. They, these men were using this. They did not care about this woman's sin. It wasn't about the sin. It was about Jesus. They were trying to, they were trying to tarnish his reputation. They're trying to put him in a situation where he lost following, where he lost credibility. So they use another person's sin. Can I say something to you? Be careful of people who are not in the church. They're out in the world, and they're condemning people inside the church. Can I tell you something? They care nothing about God. They care nothing about the church. They care nothing about you. They don't care about standards or morals. But they, matter of fact, you know what they're offended with? The way of the Lord. He's a pastor. They're right. You, you, you're missing the whole point. The, the, the reason that the, well, how right were the Pharisees? Do you notice something? They brought this woman to Jesus. He never once questioned her. Jesus did not talk to her. As far as we know, he did not look at her until they left. He never spoke to the sin. He never asked for information to make a judgment. He did not care. What he was consumed with was not what she did wrong, but with the accusers. And because, <laughs> well, here's what we miss. Accusation is the beginning of judgment. And judgment is the beginning of condemnation. And condemnation is the end of the story. It's a death sentence. When you condemn people, you kill a part of them that never comes back to life. Unless God gets involved. We are a church of people and we say we love transforming impact, right? People are going to come into this house guilty. People among us are going to be found guilty. What are we going to do when they're caught in the very act? What are we going to do when they're, when they're dead to right? Can they come among us and find a safe place, although we know they're wrong? Or we, these kind of people say, well, I love you and you're right, but you know, when you're right, you're right. No, no, no. My question to you is, can God trust us with people's failures? Can, can, can accusers bring people to us and throw them in the midst of us? What I love about the crowd is they never said a word. They were horrified. The crowd stood and just watched Jesus do business. They watched him handle with, with, with the grace of God. With, with the, the, I've never seen such a masterful way to get out of a catch-22. But you know what Jesus noticed? They mentioned Moses. They implicated Caesar. They kind of mentioned God by mentioning the commandment, and they, they pointed to him as the Messiah. But you know who they didn't mention? Themselves. The accuser never mentions themselves. And so what Jesus said was, well, he that's without sin among you. Get the stone on because she is guilty. When you are in a situation... And you're defending someone from death, from condemnation, from their lives being snuffed out because they missed it. The first place you have to look at is the spirit of the accuser. If the, now, there's, there's three different accusers. There's the accuser who was wronged. When, the, when, a, when an accuser has been wronged, you must listen. You must show empathy and compassion. How are you following this? 
because this person has been violated. It's a different obligation, right? Then there's the accuser who has nothing to do with the situation. They just want to see someone die, right? Then there's the accuser who's a demonic plant. Their entire job is to make sure that person's ministry, that person's purpose, that person's, this person's calling never gets past this moment. This is the moment that hell had been waiting for. Hell had been tracking this person. This person had been doing good works. This person has been building people up and strengthening people in the kingdom of God. And now they mess up and now we got them. And you can always tell what kind of accuser you're dealing with. Why is you so invested in this person dying in this moment? Why are you so invested? Well, they, but they're not who they say they are. None of us are who we say we are. I said none of us. Let me tell you something. If you ask a person, who, you, who, who are you? They will tell you the best version of themselves. But the truth of the matter is, there is a book being written. People, listen, we will not need a savior if we didn't need saving. So, so the, I'm going to give you four ways real quickly and then we're done. I, I just went way over the time. It was fun being all over the place today. <laughs> the Bible teaches that there are four ways to condemn yourself. The first way is simple. In John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus said, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And he says this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he did not believe or does not believe in the name of the only son of God. So the first way we condemn ourselves is by rejecting Jesus. The moment you say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ, I, I don't believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you condemn yourself. In other words, you, people say, well, God, I don't believe God sends people to hell. He doesn't. People send themselves to hell. People choose hell over a story. It's like being in a restaurant, right? You're sitting down, you're eating, and someone goes up to the, the counter, he pays for all the meals, and then the maitre d on the microphone says, um, get whatever you want, all your meals are paid for. Some people go, really? They say, well, I'm finished eating, I'm full. So that, that one group. Another group says, I was full until they said that. Bring me some dessert or bring me another menu. Then you have the guy who's in pride going, nah, it's a trick. Nah, I pay for my own stuff. So everyone has come up to the front with their little... Their little uh, bill and giving it and said, paid in full, paid in full. But this one person comes up and says, nah, nah, we got this. And so the matron is like, well, no, no, it's paid for. No, no, I pay for my own stuff. That's the person that shows up at the great white throne judgment because they rejected what God offered for free. Because they thought, watch this now, they were so invested in their sin, so invested in living the way they were living, that they were saying, nah, I'm, and then they lied to themselves saying, if I do enough good to cover my bad, then God would accept me. That religious lie it got more people in trouble. What we do is when Jesus said, I've paid it in full, I say, yes, Lord. Now watch this. You're going to struggle sometimes. You're going to find yourself in a cycle trying to get out of some situations that, that, that has been long working in you. Anybody could testify to that. But watch this. You have to understand this. And I made this statement last week. In the ark, when Noah was in the ark, he, they were riding on some troubled waters. God was flooding the whole earth, right? How many of you know people in the ark were falling down? There were people in the ark falling down. Probably rolling around trying to get their, their self together. Inside the ark. They weren't outside the ark drowning. 
They were, they were inside in Christ, being in your safe place in Christ. You're going to fall sometimes. You're going to struggle sometimes. Yes, you are. He said, Bible says he's able to keep you. He's able to keep you from falling. But sometimes we don't know how to hold on. Right? Okay, I'm going too long. So number one, the Bible teaches that, that we condemn ourselves by rejecting Christ. Number two, we condemn ourselves by, con- by condemning others. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, listen to this. It says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges or condemns others. For in passing judgment on others, you condemn yourself. Here's what it says. By passing judgment on others, you what? Condemn yourself. Whenever the enemy wants you to condemn yourself, he tempts you to judge another person. Understanding that judgment is a seed. Everybody say that out loud. Judgment is a seed. Listen, you need to tell your friend when they call you, girl, do you hear that out Judgment is a seed. I'm not sharing in the seed you're planting. Right? Number three. I covered number three already by speaking. When I speak useless words, the Bible says, by my words, I will be justified and by my words, I'll be condemned. I can speak the wrong words and bring condemnation on my life. Notice this in the Bible. It's in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37. I can say, I can start speaking words and bring condemnation on my life. I was very careful when, new, when the news started flashing about this person and that person. I saw, I saw all the saints sharing. and I just kind of kept watching. People were reaching out to me for, uh, we want to we get you on our podcast. We want to interview you about this situation. I said, I have nothing to say. Nothing? But you're a trusted voice, and I want to keep it that way. I have nothing to say. And they said, man, they said, we just knew you have something to say. So, so my, my podcast guy calls. He said, hey, it's time to do a new podcast. And I said, cool. We get on the podcast. He said, what do you want to talk about? I said, anything but that. Why? Because I'm going to tell you something. There's some things you don't put your mouth on. You watch as an intercessor. You watch in horror. You watch in prayer. You watch. In, no, no. There's some things that you see and you go before God with fear and trembling and weeping before God. Listen, because the truth of the matter is this is an old saying, but for the grace of but for the grace of God, that is me. But for the grace of God, there go I. How many of you have ever been in a situation that if God had not put the cover on it? No, 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 you're, you're, not, you're not excited enough. How many of you, how many of you, you can tell your story the way you want to tell it because God covered it when it was going down? So how dare you now look at people who have the unfortunate situation of being paraded before people who hate them can you imagine what it feels like and you sit there and you say well you know I just knew I saw and you I hate the deal prophets who say well the Lord showed me you are lying the truth in you that was not the Lord that was a demon I said it was a demon I'm gonna say it again the, the Lord Russia it's amazing if, if you listen to some people God is a whole gossip God is a whole gossip. God is a whole slanderer. But God says, I'm in Psalm 50. God says, I am not that with you. He said, I've heard you talk about your mother's son. He said that. He said, you talk about your own folk. God said, I'm not doing that with you. Read it in Psalm 50. 
God is covering some things. Why? Because God is trying to give you a chance. He's giving space to repent. Now, when the, when the space runs out and you fail to repent and God judges the situation, it is not out of hatred. It is out of deep mercy and redemptive love that God, you're falling down a pit and God is trying to grab you. What does he do? He pulls the cover off of you and people see it and you turn to him because you have nowhere else to go. And his whole, his whole program is to save you. He's trying to save you from yourself. And listen, judgment sets, shuts down the sin factory. Judgment shuts down the sin factory. When your life is producing sin automatically, and you watch this, Paul says, what he says, with my heart, I want to serve the Lord. But he said, but with my mind, there's, a, there's something working against my mind. He's in a situation, he said, who will save me, oh wretched man that I am? Jesus steps in, Jesus said, I will save you. And sometimes to save you, he snatches the cover off of you and said, come, run to me. And you run your naked self to him. This woman that was caught in the act of adultery, the Pharisees did not even know. They sent her to the one person that could, that could save her. They, sent her, they, they, they took her to the one person that could save her. And in that moment, when, when all was said and done, Jesus turns to the woman. He's a woman. Where are those that accusers? He says, doth no man condemn thee? She said, no man, Lord. And the Lord looks at her and says, neither do I. Wait, the Messiah, Jesus, the son of God, God incarnate, she broke his law and she's uncovered to the point where wicked religious people bring her and strip her naked in front of all. And you don't condemn her. Here's what he says to her. He says, go. The gift of no condemnation enables the repentant, to walk away from a sinful situation and never look back. When we don't condemn people, we empower them to be free from the sin. When we condemn them and try to put a period on their story and extinguish them, what we do is in the shame of it, when we say you're worth nothing, you're worth less, the person starts living like a, th they start feeling like a throwaway first. And then after a while of living alone, because no one comes to check for them because their lives are destroyed, they start feeling like a throwaway, then they start living like a throwaway. I, there was a girl, I'm going to end with this, play, play something real quickly. When I was a young minister, there was a young lady in South, South Georgia. I'm, I'm almost done. And they cast the devil out of her. i never forget it. They cast the devil out of her. It was the first time I've ever seen it happen. It was powerful. Then the churches, the, the leaders started fighting over whose power drove the devil out. No one checked on the girl. Come to find out what her, that demon had her just giving her body away, giving her body away. And I remember when we found out that she was sick and she had syphilis. And the church found out what, what she was in and they shunned her. I'm a young minister. I'm watching this from afar. I would walk down the street sometime and see her. She was on something I'd never seen on the street before. I knew nothing about this new form of cocaine called crack. When they threw her away, when they condemned her because she turned up sick and the church threw her away, she had nowhere to turn. She'd come to church and people act like she wasn't there. Next time I saw her, she was walking down the street. The girl was so sick, her teeth started to fall out of her head. And as a young minister, I frowned on my leaders who were quote-unquote so anointed because they threw away a whole soul 
I didn't understand the doctrine I'm preaching now, but they threw away a soul because they didn't want to be identified with a sin. Let me say this to you. Let me tell you this right now. The kind of, I am too old to be playing church games. If we're going to love people, no, no, come on. If we're going to love people, we got to love people. If we're going to love people, I'm going to tell you this. Be careful who you tell your story to. But if you come here and you have need, if you come here and you're broken, if you come here and something got a hold of you, get with some folk and let's get you free. And if, if, they, if they start running their mouth and putting you, let me know. Because we're not doing that here. People need to be set free like we were set free. And if we still buy, we need to get free. Go and sin no more. I will not condemn you. I will not condemn you. 